What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest men in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Thursday, July 30th. Only a very small portion of Americans alive today can even remember a time when Russia was considered a friend to the United States. Sure, there are some of the greatest generations still alive who recall the Soviets as allies in the Second World War. But baby boomers and Gen Xers alike came of age between 1947 and 1989 during a period of incredible tension between the U.S. and the USSR. Millennials and Gen Z members have surely only known Russia to be an adversary. Only a small sliver of Americans, the tail end of Gen Xers and the earliest millennials, folks who came of age between the end of the Cold War in 1989 through the resignation of Russia's first president, Boris Yeltsin, in 1999, are likely to recall that really brief period of hope and warming relations between the two most powerful countries on Earth. Before and since those years, only ice. While there's been no official designation of a second Cold War, most foreign policy experts and analysts concede that relations between our two nations have not been this concerning since the air raid sirens and fallout shelters of the early 1960s. How has a relationship that showed so much promise in the 1990s once again deteriorated to such an icy state? Who's to blame? Is it Putin? Is it U.S. policy? David Korn is a Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, an MSNBC analyst and author of the New York Times' number one bestseller, Russian Roulette. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic, a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Affairs, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of numerous books on Eastern Europe, the latest of which is called Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes two of our country's foremost authorities on the U.S.-Russia relationship— for a conversation about just how concerned we should be that that relationship is deteriorating with the world's largest country. How valid are the threats of Russian interference against our troops, against our elections? Why does Russia seem to want to harm the U.S., and what does it hope to gain? And if it's possible, how the heck are we going to get along? Thanks so much for for doing this. I'm uh, sort of pumped about this conversation because it's something we hear in the news all the time, Russia, 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 Russia. But I have yet to really hear anyone who's an expert explain to me what the is going on. And, you know, we were talking, uh, the producers and I were talking a few hours ago about, you know, I grew up in and, and sort of came of age, went to school in that one tiny sliver of time where it looked like maybe Russia and America were going to get along. Uh, after the Cold War ended, 
Yeltsin's relationship with uh, with Clinton. You know, we saw him getting drunk and being foolish, and he was sort of silly. And then, you know, sometime, I guess, in the late 90s, maybe when Putin took power, um, you have to tell me, something obviously changed, and Russia has gone back to sort of this Cold War enemy. And, and I would love just some sort of explanation, maybe, or, or understanding of how we got back here. So to understand what's going on in Russia now, um, you really do have to go back to the 1990s and even to 1989 um, to understand who Putin was and what he was doing then. Um, he was a KGB officer. Uh, he was based in East Germany. Um, and as we know, actually, from a very recent and very good new biography of him, um, he was working, at the very least, was working together with people who were engaged in influence operations, in terrorism um, operations, and who were also at that time beginning to set up what later became the massive sort of dark money and money laundering operations um, that the, the, the KGB would run, you know, across Europe and the world. Um, he grew up in that climate. Um, he was a young uh, officer in that climate. At that moment, he he experienced the fall of communism as a terrible personal disaster. You know, this was a awful thing that happened to his colleagues in the East German Stasi, and he experienced it as a loss, a sense of he's he's spoken about it. You know, he felt that his country was didn't come to his aid when when the KGB office, the KGB headquarters in Dresden were 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 attacked by protesters, and he felt that you know his country had failed him. Um, and with this sense of disappointment, he went back to Russia in the 90s, um, and very slowly, he and the the a generation of other KGB officers who were similarly disappointed of of his age, gradually used their connections, their money, um, the money they'd in some cases stolen from the country, taken laundered abroad, brought back into the country, used to buy property, and they used this money and um, and the power and connections that they had to return to power. Um, and so what Putin represents is a is the revanchism. I mean, it's not the Communist Party back in power, but it's the KGB back in power and the people who were trained in KGB thinking um, and KGB tactics. And so his mentality is very much one of a security officer who sees every opponent as a potential foreign agent. Um, he's not somebody who can understand um, a de you know, democratic debate as involving two sides that may have an equal equal say. He can't understand the concept of a loyal opposition. Um, every opponent of his is a must be, by definition, manipulated by the West or by the CIA or by, I don't know, MI6 or, or somebody else. So that, that is sort of the sounds mentality. like American politics right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the mentality that ran Russia. You know, so that's that's the kind of country that we're dealing with. And this is also a country that sees democracy and democracy rhetoric as a personal challenge. And so he's somebody who has, certainly for the last decade, um, since he's um, focused on using what tactics he can to undermine other democracies. Um, so whether in Western Europe or in the United States, you know, the, to, to fund um, uh, authoritarian uh, far-right parties, in some cases far-left parties, um, to help corrupt businessmen, to encourage corrupt business, um, to use, again, the KGB's old contacts, its dark money contacts, its money laundering contacts to create webs of connections and political influence across Europe um, and the United States. And the reason why 
um, Russia got involved in our politics is because the KGB and the and the and the and the successor organizations um, they're not all called the KGB anymore um, began two decades ago to cultivate people in our country as well in the United States as well and that meant business contacts it meant um, you know looking for money laundering opportunities um, and one of the places that they found, one of the sort of big loopholes, one of the industries that they found easiest to get into was real estate, because you can own property in the United States and not have your name on it. You can own it through a series of shell companies. You don't have to prove where the money came from. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a industry that was very open to Russian money um, in the 90s and the 2000s and later on. And one of the people who had frequent and constant contact with Russian oligarchs and with Russian um, you know, Russian business of different kinds was, in fact, Donald Trump. So he was somebody who already had Russian connections all through his career. He was used to dealing in that world of kind of slippery money and difficult people. You remember he owned casinos and so on. And he, you know, and and as as he becomes an important political figure um, in the U.S., it is unsurprising that the Russians saw him as an opportunity and as a way to, um, um, you know, harm or damage democracy in the United States. That's the, that, okay, the, people have been, written dozens of books about this, and this is, that was the five-minute version. <laughs> it, and, it, and it was filled with a lot, because there's a whole <laughs> bunch of things I want to unpack from it, too. I mean, it, it sounds like, you when you use the word term like money laundering, I assume that, I, I it, to me, that says illegal activity, and you're trying to clean the money so it doesn't look like it came from illegal activity. Are, are you saying that, that, Russian oligarchs or the Russian government was trying to purchase real estate in the U.S. And are you implying that maybe Donald Trump was helping them do that? I'm not, I didn't want to jump directly to Trump right yet, but if, if we're there, let's go. Um, is that is that kind of how you feel like maybe the connection is is between he and, That's and Putin? That, that is one of the connections, yes. I mean, so that Russian businessman by real estate in the United States under, you know, uh, under the cover of shell companies and that they do so using money that of unclear origin is not controversial. Like we know that happens, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not in doubt. And there are now a number of programs actually in Miami and New York and elsewhere designed to end some of those practices. And I'm hoping that eventually they'll end completely. But so that, that's not in doubt that there are, um, a number of, um, you know, wealthy Russians who have been circling Donald Trump since the 1990s is also not in doubt. Uh, it's not a it's not a um, secret. You know, it's a it, it's well known, um, you know, that, you know, the, you know, and, and that um, Trump, I can believe it was one of his sons who said um, who was on record saying um, that much of the investment into Trump properties, into Trump real estate was coming from Russia. He said this a decade ago. Um, Lord Christ, you know, now he, I had a whole I had a whole line of questions, and we yeah. have uh, I'm already sidetracked, David. That sounds like some pretty awful stuff. Well, <laughs> that, that well, we are... let's, let's take one step backwards uh, first here, one step back, and that is you know you use the phrase Russia, 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 which is what, what yeah. Trump always says to try to diminish the importance of the Russia story, and um, I agree with everything that Anne said. I think it's important to note because you talk about people out there who may not pay as much attention to this as, as we do, and why this, you know, why this should or should, you know should be important to them, and that is that part of what Putin has been doing over the last ten years or so is trying to undermine liberal democracy 
in Europe and in the United States because he doesn't want the criticism from abroad about his own authoritarian ways, right? When Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and she raised questions about an election that was held at that time under Putin's auspices in which there was a tremendous amount of fraud, you know, he got very steamed about that. He didn't want to be challenged from the outside because he is trying to, you know, keep an iron fist control of Russia. Just recently, he more or less changed the constitution so he can become president for life. So he's had this long project to undermine democracy abroad so that it can't be critical of him at home. And this came about at the same time as a change in sort of the Russian strategic view of the world, which is, you know, we have nuclear weapons, but we don't have the mightiest military. Getting into land wars in Europe is not really going to help us much, though they've, you know, they've done, you know, they have invaded in a way Ukraine. And so they turn towards cyber operations, active measures, disinformation, propaganda, clandestine operations to try to support political parties that would be amenable to them in other countries and to undermine those who would challenge them. So you come into 2016 and they are already up and running in terms of cyber warfare, information warfare, and they use that to pervert an American election. They came in and said, we don't want Hillary Clinton. She is, you know, a smart woman who's been tough on Putin. And we have Donald Trump, who has been very kind to Putin and who has relied on some Russian financing. And while he was running for president, without telling any voter, he was pursuing a deal in Moscow to develop a Trump Tower there that would bring him hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is exactly the type of guy they like. In 2013, he held his Miss Universe pageant there. And while much of the world at that point had come to see Putin as a repressive thug, he was tweeting out, will Putin come to my event? Will he become my new best friend? Who wants to be best friends with Putin? Well, Putin could certainly look at Trump and look at the decades of Trump's efforts to do business and make money in Russia and come to a clear understanding that he would be better for Russia and that also he'd be a mess for the United okay, so, States. So this is what complicates it, makes it so complicated for me to understand. And I, I try to be smart, but I'm not always. <laughs> but, but you know, this is, we live in a bumper sticker uh, political climate and, and mm-hmm. the Russia situation is a doctoral dissertation at at its easiest. But one of the questions that I I have is, what's their end game? What is it they want? And while I understand certainly the motivation, I mean, sort of the bully who tries to make other people look bad so they don't look so bad, that seems like one motivation. But then I'm hearing another motivation that they want Trump because he's friendly to them and he's nice to them. And it seems like there's so many different threads that one can pull at when it comes to what the true motivation is. So, so the Russians actually have um, a very clear set of strategic goals, unlike the United States right now, I should say. And one of their goals is to break up Western institutions. They don't Why? like NATO. They don't like the European Union. Because when Russia talks to any European country, you know, Germany, but especially, I don't know, Lithuania, little countries, they are at least the equal, if not the dominant partner. 
when they talk to the EU or NATO, they are, mm -hmm. you know, we much weaker. Um, and the EU and NATO have the ability to do things that are disadvantageous to Russia. Like they can, the, the EU can pass laws about that, that make it difficult for Russian pipelines to operate in the way they want. And they can pass laws against money laundering that bother the Russians. Okay. Um, and they can, they can act as a group to, against Russia. But do they so see Russia the U.S. Been, as that strong as well? Typically, so they they see well. They the U.S. presence in Europe is one of the things that keeps Europe together and keeps this mm -hmm. Western democratic alliance together. And so, one of their strategic goals for a long time has been to get the U.S. out of Europe. And so, what they like about Trump is that Trump has actually been saying for three decades. It's in his early books that he wrote, or go, somebody ghost wrote for him that he dislikes the American <laughs> alliance. You know, he he wants it over. He, it's a waste of money. He's even said that World War II was a waste of money. You know, why are we worrying about these European conflicts? And he's an isolationist um, in the model probably of his father. You know, he's from, these are ideas going back to the 1930s. Um, and and the Russians like, you know, you know if, if you're asking why they like him, it's that. I mean, they were, you know, he's useful to them because he's someone who is undermined America's alliances, actually not just in Europe, um, but around the world. I mean, I should, to be clear, I don't think that the Russians, um, the, the, the the GRU team that came into the United States and did disinformation on top of Donald Trump, I don't think that they necessarily thought they would win. I mean, a lot of their methodology is to kind of throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. You know, I don't think there's a, you know, I don't think Putin is a kind of master schemer. You know, I think in in 2016, they got very lucky. As, as David said, they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Um, they did prefer Donald Trump. They decided to play some games. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, they sent various different, you know, there were various different kinds of contacts that Trump had with Russia. And I think they were, you know, hoping he would win because he would weaken America's role in the world, which has in fact happened. I mean, that, you know, you have to say that they were successful. But I, I, I don't think that they um, you know, that it was some kind of brilliant operation. Um, I, you know, some of it was successful, some of it wasn't. A key word to keep in mind, Clay, is destabilize. Unstability, destabilizing the United States and Europe and, and elsewhere. You know, look at Russia. Uh, Putin wants to be a superpower. He has nuclear weapons. But what else does he have? The economy is not strong. Russia doesn't make too many things that the rest of the world wants. Russia is not a country or a culture that much of the world wants to emulate. So it's really about brute force and, 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 and power and, and maintaining influence. And it's harder to do that if Europe is united and pressing for democratic values. And, this, and if the U.S. has moral and clear and strong standing in the world. So it's not about making Russia better. It's about making the rest of the world weaker and harder to be a counterbalance to Russia. And so, you, you know, I, I think Anne is right that when they started this operation in 2016 to influence the election here, they looked at whether they could change voting counts and get into voting systems, and they probed. They didn't do a lot there. But they got involved in social media and they hacked Democrats to get uh, information they could then disseminate publicly. It was about causing chaos and sowing discord to make it to make democracy look messy and to make it look weak, to do it in a way with a preference 
for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton to try to hurt her and help him. And, you know, even if she had managed to win, the fact that you know, they still could claim to have created a chaotic, discordant election that might have had ramifications afterwards that would be bad for America. They're here to, to basically put fuel on the divisions we have already. And okay, to just so, make so, things look as chaotic and messy as possible, whether they get the exact outcome they seek. Okay, so follow this this line here for a yeah. second and, and do a little bit more of what you've been doing already. When when Congress, Cedric Richmond, asks Bill Barr in hearing yesterday, is Russia attempting to interfere in the 2020 presidential election? Yeah. Regardless of how Barr answers it, tell me what that looks like. You started it a little bit there. It's chaos. But when if if I'm a voter, yeah. am I are we talking about Russia going in and changing my vote in the computer or are we talking about right. them manipulating Facebook and trying to change my mind? What exactly are we most afraid that they're doing? Um Michael Isakoff and I described what happened in 2016 in our book Russian Roulette just came out in a paperback version. But we we put it, it you know think of it as a triangle a three-legged stool there were three ways that the russia that russia attacked the american election in 2020 first they did probe voter registration databases and basically see what they could do to get into systems and you could do that for two of, for one of two reasons really one could be to actually change the tally and to mess up the tally they didn't do that and the other is to just to try to break down the system. Imagine if you're in a, in a swing state, Pennsylvania. You're in a key county in Pennsylvania. You go into their voter system and you change people's addresses or you change their voter registration numbers so that when hundreds or thousands of people show up to vote, they can't vote. And then they start complaining, something's wrong with the election. We can't vote. And perhaps that could even have uh, an influence on the actual outcome. If you can't vote in this county, how do you count the votes from the key swing state of Pennsylvania? So they didn't do that in 2016, but it looked as if they got into these systems and took a look around to see what trouble they could cause. You keep um, saying so, they didn't do that as if though the next sentence is going to be, but we worry they will this time? But, but the, oh, the Obama administration was tremendously worried that they would do something like that on election day. But that didn't happen. But that's one thing. Get you know, screw around with the system, with a vote counting system. The other thing, the other two things they did do. They ran an information warfare operation by getting into social media. You've heard about this with Facebook and Twitter, setting up Russian bots and false accounts to try to get messages out there that would sway people's minds. That would, you know, one thing they did was they put out a lot of uh, messaging on Facebook targeting black voters to make Hillary Clinton look bad. They were trying to suppress the black vote. And Facebook and Twitter and others have taken down these accounts. But, you know, we didn't see this while it was happening. And they created rallies that were basically fraudulent rallies for Trump against Hillary Clinton. So they did do those things. Those things did happen. And the third thing they did, you know, called a cyber operation, cyber warfare, instead of information warfare, and we know this, they hacked into the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, stole thousands of documents. They got documents from John Podesta, 
who was the right. campaign uh, CEO of the Hillary Clinton campaign, and they handed them to WikiLeaks and, and using other uh, methods, they leaked them publicly. That was to what did that do? It nearly blew up the, the Democratic convention because it got Bernie people mad. And in October, for four weeks, the media, the political media, the New York Times and political were obsessed with all the information being leaked from John Podesta's emails. Some of it was more titillating than important. But every day there was a story about that. And it was only about Hillary Clinton. It wasn't about Donald Trump. So you have those three things, you know, cyber operations, information warfare, and attacking the voting system. Now, any one of those things could be happening again right now. You're right. I wrote about this. Bill Barr was asked, you know, is Russia intervening again in 2020? And what he said was interesting. He said, well, we would have to assume they are. Now that, And then he didn't say anything else. He didn't say, we're doing something about it. How dare they do this? We're going to stand up to this. They better not do this. He just kicked it to the side. FBI Director Chris Wray a few months ago and, and Trump's Director of National Intelligence, John Ratcliffe, have both testified that Russia is intervening right now. They won't tell us what they're doing. They won't tell us what the intelligence says. So Bark tried to dismiss this and say, well, we should assume they're doing this. Well, we have other people in the Trump administration saying it is happening. And of course, Trump, is re- who didn't recognize the 2016 intervention and still you know, denies or dismisses it, won't acknowledge this now. So we know this is happening. We don't know what is happening. And we don't know if the Trump administration is doing anything about it. So we're running right into another replay, or could even be worse, with the 2020 campaign. And does the U.S. not do this to other countries also? So these kinds of precise tactics, no, we don't, to my knowledge. We don't, um, um, you know, we do promote democracy. So that means that we um, we argue in favor of democracy. We have, we, you know, via various different kinds of institutions, um, we do support groups who, um, you know, who, who, who seek to, you know, who campaign for independent judges or who fight corruption and so on. Um, but, but actually seeking to, um, to fix elections right now, that's not something that we are doing. And we certainly so are there not is a line. in Russia. So you're telling uh, me there so is th- a line <laughs> that we there, there won't are, cross, are, but they will. Y- yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think there is a precedent um, that's comparable, you know, the kind, the, 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 the attempt that, that Russia has made in the U.S. By the way, I think it's important for, for, to, to, to remember that what Russia did in the U.S. is, is, is not unique. Um, they have very similar kinds of um, hacking and leaking they've done in other countries, um, similar social media campaigns, disinformation campaigns in other countries. Um, you know, they support the, uh, you know, have lent money to the French far right. Um, they helped create the German far right, the, uh, you know, um, and they, uh, there was recently just last week, um, the British parliament released a report um, on Russian interference in British politics. And um, one of the observations of the report is there's, it is widely believed that they were attempting to do these kinds of disinformation projects, both during there was a campaign for Scottish independence and then later on during the Brexit vote. Um, they are also well, the reason have played a role. The reason I ask is because one of the one of the other things that we've seen Russia in the news for recently is is the bounties that they have been yep. putting on the heads of Afghan of of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. And one of the responses 
um, uh, one of the many responses that are all in various different directions that has come from uh, the president is something akin to, well, we did that to Russia back in the 80s. We did we we funded the Mujahideen when they were fighting against Russia. I'm not I'm not yeah. accepting that as a reason, but I, I asked I wanted to make sure you I was clear why I was asking if we do well, this. It's important. I think it's important to note that in American history, we have gotten involved in overturning democratic elections in the past. We did it in Iran. We did it uh, in Guatemala. We did it in Chile. I mean, there are examples of this happening in the past. You know, the CIA was involved in assassination efforts against Fidel Castro in the early 60s and with some other foreign leaders as well. But, you know, we're talking half a century, more than half a century ago. And so we have seen Donald Trump time and time again, when asked about Putin's thuggish behavior or or, or, or lethal and repressive behavior, say, well, we've done that too. We all do that. And that's what he said uh, about the Russian bounty program. But, you know, the question really isn't, I mean, that because we did this 50 years ago, that makes it right now. It's like, okay, you know, we are, why are we in Afghanistan supposedly to, you know, you know, help the Afghan government and to prevent, you know, terrorism from coming back from using the Afghan, Afghanistan as a base? And why was uh, Russia in Afghanistan? I mean, he, they're, 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 these are not morally equivalent positions. And for him to always sort of defend Putin by saying, well, we did something like this once upon a time, is kind of bizarre and wrong, but it shows he has a very willful blind spot I mean, he, he, towards, towards Putin, and he is coming up with these intellectually vacuous arguments to defend him. And, you know, we could talk for hours here about why he does that. I, there, I think there are several different reasons, but there's no doubt that he this is what he does. Uh, it's, you know, it's also, I mean, think about it. He's the president of the United States of America. Uh, we are talking about American soldiers being targeted um, by Russians in Afghanistan, where um, it is his job as the president to defend and care about Americans. It is not his job to say, oh, well, it's not my problem, or that's, you know, brush yes. it away. I mean, that's, that is the, you know, in a way, that's the most deeply shocking thing about what he's saying. Yeah, he shows, I mean, even when he defends himself and says, I didn't see the intelligence, which he didn't see it because he didn't read his presidential daily brief, the, the intelligence report he gets each day. In um, fairness, I think at other times he said he saw it. <laughs> Well, well, in the interview with Axios, he said it never reached his desk. Actually, the PDB reaches his desk, you know, every day that he get, that, you know, he, he gets it every day. But, uh, but regardless of whether he saw the intelligence, to Anne's point, he is in charge of protecting every American GI serving in our name. And so, it, it seems once this story comes out, the natural response for any president would be. Even if, let's say you didn't see it, you say, well, I didn't know about this. I'm going to do everything I can to find out whether this is true or not. And I will not let Russia or anybody else get away with threatening and endangering the lives of American soldiers. 
period. 20 seconds. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what, what to say in this circumstance. The fact that he can't do that, the fact that he can't acknowledge that Russia attacked the 2016 election, that he can't accept the findings of his own intelligence community again and again and again. I mean, you run out of adjectives to describe how strange and bizarre these reactions are. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love, sex, or to hedge your reproductive odds. I think women have this ability to plant these mental bombs into a man's mind. But the thing about humor is that the value of humor, it goes up. We're wired to reproduce. To them, it was a super female. It was a giant female. And they were lured into, um, into trying to mate with it. The science of love is fascinating. It's a bizarre form of biohacking, really. If you have the 7 or plus gene, you are more likely to be involved in an affair, yes. That's where some of the research gets really intriguing. There's so many ways to be a human. But I must say, sex between three people can get complicated. In a nutshell, the Kinsey scale looked at two things, sexual fantasies and actual sexual behavior. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs> Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. From forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes published twice a week with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you were talking a little bit about the fact that Donald Trump has sort of espoused uh, removing America from alliances like NATO for years prior to him running for office. Um, but you also mentioned that he perhaps has had relationships with Russian oligarchs wanting to get involved in real estate in the U.S. for years, too. I guess I kind of, I'm, I'm wondering, is there, a, is there a real, whether you agree with it or not, is there a real valid argument to pulling the U.S. out of things like NATO that's that's has nothing to do with Russia, or or is it? I mean, it's a chicken or the egg type situation here. Where do you think the motivation for wanting to do some of these things that Russia very clearly wants, and Donald Trump happens to also agree with? Where's that motivation coming from? So uh, you know, I my view of Donald Trump is that his dislike of alliances comes first of all from very deep ignorance. I don't think he understands how the how America's alliances have um, spread and enhanced not just American power, but 
um, international prosperity and peace, actually, um, around the world over the last 60 years. Um, you know, the, the fact that Europe is a, is a unified, peaceful continent where U.S. companies can do business and Americans can travel um, and is a, you know, these are open societies where um, that are not fighting with each other. Part of that is the is is the result of um, of America's longstanding investment in Europe, and w- which has paid itself back in many ways because of uh, because of you know e- e- economically and politically and culturally has been to enormous our enormous advantage. Um, same is true in my view, actually, of our alliances in Asia, which have which have equally paid back. Um, Trump is not somebody who thinks in terms of geopolitics. He doesn't think strategically. He thinks in terms of you know business transactions. And he seems to be bothered by these alliances because he thinks they cost a lot. Um, you know, given the benefits that we have from them, and given the um, the good that they've done, and the but are there say, others the, who hold those views? I mean, is that a libertarian view? Would Rand Paul agree with something like that? Are there other people who think that NATO huh, not worth it? So there is a very, I mean, yes, I would say there is a very small fringe libertarian view that that thinks that. Um, there is a sm- historically very small, it was it was larger in the 1930s, but in the last 60 years, it's been very small. There is historically an isolationist streak in the American public and in some thinkers who think the United States shouldn't have any involvement abroad. It shouldn't have a foreign policy. It shouldn't necessarily even have an army. It should be, you know, we should just protect our borders and let everybody else sort of go to hell. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the political consensus um, since the 1940s um, has been that the 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 alliances and America's involvement in the world have been to America's advantage, have made America great and prosperous, and have made made America um, the, the 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 country that had the most say in the world about how things would go in the world. Um, it's been you know those alliances are what give us our power and influence. Um, and if you undermine those alliances, then you undermine America's power, um, which, by the way, I think has happened. I mean, I think in the Trump presidency, um, American influence has dwindled. Um, I think, I mean, you know, the, the, there, there's a lot of uh, talk now in Washington, including inside the Trump administration, about the rise of China and Chinese influence. Um, one of the reasons that that's happening is because of the decline in American influence. Um, countries are beginning to look around the world and say, well, right, you know, we we were reliant upon the United States and we believed in um, you know, and you know that America would come to our aid or would be our ally. If that's not going to be the case, then maybe we should step back a minute and maybe we should do a deal with America and do a deal with China and have a different attitude towards the world. I mean, you can you can already hear these conversations going on in Europe and in Asia, um, and and for that matter, you know, Africa and South America right now. Um, so we are conceding power and influence, and that will eventually be felt in terms of economics, um, uh, you know, and, and, and politics in the years to come. I would Go just ahead. add, Clay, that I do think on, on the progressive side of the coin, there has been, you know, some skepticism or questioning about the utility of NATO, particularly NATO expansion since the fall of the, of the Soviet Union, tying into thinking about the gargantuan American military budget and whether that money could be better spent elsewhere. But um, people would want to have a reasonable, you know, sane, deliberative debate over what to do. With Donald Trump, you have someone who talks about blowing up alliances and NATO, you know, with the drop of a hat, while at the same time, 
boasting about spending more money on the military. And the question is, well, to what end? As Anne said, there is no strategic vision here. So why do we need to spend more money on a military that already is larger than any other military in the history of humankind? Um, so it's this willy-nilly approach that comes from no study or consideration of policy and, and strategy. Is it reversible, um, though? Is it, is, it, is it something that the damage has this sort of blowing up? The that's a good the- question. I think Joe Biden would tell you that's what this election is about. Uh, because we've been through four years of this. As Anne says, we have done tremendous damage to our standing abroad. We've done tremendous uh, damage to our alliances. Uh, Donald Trump seems to want to hang out with Kim Jong-un and Putin and the autocratic murderous leaders of Saudi Arabia and Turkey and the Philippines. And rather than work together with our natural allies in the West on on climate change, on nuclear nonproliferation, on uh, global responses to COVID and to economic downturns and having a, a, a sane trade policy. Um, so we, we've taken a real big hit. Now, I think if, you know, it's, you know, it's not too late that if there's a change come January, you can, you know, you're going to have to get out of the hole that you're in. But if we keep digging into this hole for another four years. I was just reading a piece uh, or a tweet by Scott Gottlieb, who used to be the head of the FDA, who said, we are now on, a, on, on, on track to a two-tier global system in which the rest of the world is able to deal with the coronavirus and COVID and will find a way to, to, to make accommodations and get their economies going and travel between them. And they may cut the United States out of that because we cannot do the simple things necessary to curtail this pandemic. So right, but we, something like that, one would hope, would be fixable. But I, I guess when, Anne, you were saying that when you were saying that people have turned to China because the U.S. isn't real, if, if, if it's something as simple as, well, it's obviously not simple, but if it's something as tangible as taking control in a pandemic and getting that underneath under control. That's one thing. But if you lose an ally to an adversary like China or Russia, is that as easy to repair? Can you get that ally back from China? So what I'm concerned about is what happens after the election to the Republican Party. Um, and whether, and, and this may depend on the results of the election. But um, if, if, if Trump loses, but only by a little bit, um, and the party remains Trumpist, and it appoints as its next leader, its next presidential candidate, I don't know, Don Jr., or... Um, uh, you may, take you know, that back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Tom giving Cotton. you the worst case scenario. <laughs> Tom Cotton, okay. Yeah. Mike Pompeo. Um, uh, Tucker Carlson, who apparently is yeah. interested in the job. So, you know, if it if it if the party uh, makes that kind of decision, um, and the party continues to, um, you know, to push for the same kind of isolationism, the same to use the same nationalist language, and also to appeal to the same kinds of authoritarian instincts that it's seeking to appeal to now, then countries around the world will look at the United States and say, okay, Joe Biden won this time. Um, but we don't know who's going to win four years from now, and we're going to hedge our bets because you know we can see that there's still 
you know, that you know, foreign policy is not bipartisan in the United States. And do you think that? And, it's- and we may, you know, and and, and you know, I'm just, you know, and and issues like, I mean, climate change is a very important issue, actually, because um, you know, we, you know, if the United States, it is, if it is not guaranteed that the United States will. For if by you know will eight years from now have a president who is committed to doing something about climate change, then that changes the kind of conversation um, that other countries will have too. I mean that's another um, you know advantage of our alliances is that if we wanted to use them, um, you know Europe is committed to um, climate change policy, environmental policy. We could make an enormous difference. You know if we're not going to. Um, then, you know, then people will, you know, you know, they'll, they'll keep distance from us. They'll say, right, we can't count on the United States. Um, and so a lot depends on which way the Republican Party goes after 2021. Do you think that there are people in the Republic, and you write about authoritarianism. Lord, I'm impressed that I actually got that one out without chewing my tongue. That's a tough word. Um, <laughs> you write something about authoritarianism um, yourself quite a bit. Uh, do you think that there are other authoritarianists <laughs> authoritarian, sorry, <laughs> yeah. in the Republican Party currently, are there are there people who are just like Trump, or or even even the furthest right, the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Tom Cotton's, do they not disavow certain authoritarian regimes like Putin's and the Philippines and and so. It- it's not. It's not so much about. It's partly about authoritarian regimes. It's also partly about how people inside the party see the United States and do they want the Republican Party to be a national party that appeals to everybody, or will it, you know, be a shrink, you know, a party of a of a you know kind of shrinking white um, uh, you know minority which can only win elections by cheating. Um, and so that is also you know that's another important you know, question that the party will have to face. And that, again, I will do they have results I, I, let I, I, Russia I, become effective yeah. and, and completely yeah. so that type of discord is what you're saying. If, right. But but it's but it's also true that what the question is whether the, you know, whether the isolationist streak in the party, which has undoubtedly um, been reinforced um, by the four years of, of the Trump presidency, the, also the question, yes, you're right, is whether that streak, you know, continues to dominate the conversation and whether, um, whoever becomes the leader or the group of leaders who take over after Trump, whether they maintain that or whether they um, come to some other conclusion about the need for alliances and the need for um, a more strategic um, foreign policy. Well, David. one thing we've seen is that the Republicans in the last three, four years uh, who used to care about foreign policy don't care about foreign policy, whether it's conservative, isolationistic liberal, progressive, whatever. They just don't care. They, they've allowed the party to become a cult of personality. And they have seen that the way to success within the Republican Party, you know, to get primary victories and to win the support of the Republican base, um, is to work as if you're a cult of personality. And so, you know, Trump's Trump is not where he is because of his foreign policy ideas in a lot of ways. Um, and he, the ideas he holds are, are or used to be an anathema to most of the party. And so we have a party that no longer cares about ideas. They don't care about fiscal responsibility. They don't care about family values. They don't care about being tough on foreign adversaries like Russia. They just don't care. They've run away from all this. They've dropped all their bedrock principles uh, 
in service of Donald Trump. So one question is, before we even start to think about what policies the next Republican candidate, presidential candidates might push, is whether the party can actually return to being a party, or whether the lesson learned by the people who remain if Trump should lose in November, is that the way to win elections or come close to winning elections or the way to win over the Republican Party is through this personal authoritarianism, in which case ideas and ideologies and policies and proposals all are completely secondary to a politics of resentment, racism, and everything else we've seen from Donald Trump. And that's that's a big question. I mean, there are never Trumpers on the Republican side who believe the Republican Party is or should be dead and that it's it's be it's 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 beyond remedy after what Trump has done to it. So um I don't know if there'll be a debate over isolationism or multilateralism at the next you know Republican convention in 2024 or whether the party will just you know turn towards whatever next strongman can bully his way um, into the in, 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 into you know the next you know Trump fill in position. You think that's the the do you do you feel that might be the truth, Anne? So the I mean um, um, David just referred to the never Trumpers. So you know the so called uh, these are the um, part of the party that doesn't accept Trump and is angry by what he did. Some of them have now coalesced and are actually campaigning for Biden and campaigning against some, some you know, Republican senators. Um, but m- most of them are doing so, as I understand it, having talked to a few of them, with the idea that what the, the party needs to lose and lose badly um, in 2020 um, so that it will be possible to revive it. You know, their argument is that America does need a conservative party. It needs an alternative political party, which is a party organized around ideas and not, as you, as we were just saying, around some kind of authoritarian personality. Um, and they believe, you know, that it might be possible to, to, to change the party and to, and again, as I say, to, to make it into a party that can appeal, um, you know, across the nation to all, you know, racial groups, um, to all classes and in all states. Um, rather than shrinking to becoming, you know, just the party of rural America or just the party of a few states. Um, you know, I mean, maybe it's um, maybe it's a pipe dream to imagine that the party could change itself that way. But American political parties have transformed themselves before. So, um, you know, the, 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 that some people are now working very hard to make that real is 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 important. Um, I want to move. We have to move on to our quick fire round um, here in a second. We take questions from our audience that have they put them on Instagram and Twitter and uh, at Politicon and and post them specifically for the two of you. But before we go to that, I do have, I do wonder from both of you, do you think that foreign policy should be higher on people's priority lists right now when they think about this next election? Or do you think that the economy and coronavirus and uh, and other issues are justifiably the focus of people's attentions or should people really be more concerned about foreign policy? Well, in general let me right s- tell you what where the connection is here. I think people should be first and foremost concerned about the honesty and integrity of their elections, because we can't take care of any of the problems we have—a pandemic, economic collapse—if we don't have 
effective leadership that reflects the majority of Americans in terms of their desires and what they want to see happen in this country. So if you go back to 2016 and we see Russian intervention, which was not the only factor, but was certainly a factor in Trump's victory. So because Putin wanted Trump to win and wanted to create chaos, we got Trump. Because we got Trump, we got an ineffectual, ineffective, disinformation-ridden response to a pandemic. We can compare what's happening here to what's happening in the rest of the world um, in terms of deaths, illnesses, economic calamity, and it's, um, it's sad. It's a tragedy. I've lost a family member. I know people are out of work. Uh, my kids are taking hits on this. I mean, it's affecting everybody and disproportionately taking the lives of Black Americans and Latino Americans. It is a disaster that was totally preventable. Not that we wouldn't have taken some loss in terms of lives and illnesses and economic uh, 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 problems, but it was preventable in terms of it being this big a deal. And thus, we, that's, that goes back to foreign policy. We failed as a country because Donald Trump was president. So if you don't care about the elections and you don't care about getting good leadership, then you can't say, you can't say that, that you do care about what happens on public health issues, on national security issues, and on economic issues. They're all tied together. And that we're where we are today because of Donald Trump and he is partially where he is today because of Russia. Anne? So I would, I would, I would endorse that, actually. Um, and, and I would add to it, you know, remind people how connected the world is today, whether or not we want it to be. You know, we are now suffering from um, a terrible virus that began in China and that spread around the world with amazing speed and is now in all kinds of you know, rural, you know, towns and, and um, you know, and cities all across the United States. Um, the prevention of global disasters like that one um, and the, um, you know, the prevention of coming climate-related disasters or environmental disasters depends on having um, a U.S. administration that is capable of dealing with and speaking to the outside world in a, in a careful and strategic way. So you don't have to know all the details of foreign policy or, you know, care about the ins and outs to want a president who, um, you know, wants to be engaged with the world, understands how to be engaged with the world, wants the U.S. to have allies, wants it to be part of a, of a system and wants to have a, um, you know, you know, wants America to be playing a positive role, um, you know, in, in world politics. Um, I just want to make sure. I just want to clarify. You, you two don't always agree on everything. I mean, you you come from different points of view on a lot of issues. But it's it's fascinating to me. I think it's telling to me that on on a lot of these issues that we've talked about here, you seem to have similar views. And, well, and th- that go on, David. I, I, I think in a lot of ways, we've Trump for good or bad has pushed a lot of the political debate and policy debate in this country beyond ideology. To me, the divide now is not left-right. It's whether you're reality-based or not reality-based. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, it sounds hyperbolic. I know you didn't mean for that to be funny, yeah, but it was. <laughs> no, it sounds hyperbolic, but the question is whether you believe public health experts when they say you should wear a mask, we all should wear a mask in order to deal with the epidemic, 
or or not. It's whether you believe Russia attacked or not. And these are not issues that are really debatable in terms of facts. Um, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm, in some ways it's it's nice to, to, you know, although I hate how how we got here to be part of our, our discussions with people who I would disagree with on policy matters, uh, but who I now agree with when it comes to the type of country, the type of governing political discourse we should have in this nation. I'd rather be arguing about whether NATO should be bigger or smaller in a reasonable way than arguing about whether there is a epidemic or not, and whether you know there is a conspiracy on the Obama administration to spy on Trump or not, um, all this craziness. So I do think um, it's unfortunate that we're, that we're put into this position these days, but that policy debates and discussions are now secondary to recognizing fundamental realities about threats to this country, very real threats that are taking the lives of our fellow citizens each and every day. Let's, uh, I think that's a perfect way to end that segment. Let's move on to our uh, quickfire round. Uh, again, like I said, we take questions from people on Twitter, Instagram. You can send them by email, podcasts at politicon.com or at politicon on Twitter, Instagram. Folks knew that the two of you would be joining us this week, so they sent in some specific questions for you. David, Pedro from Las Vegas asks, at what point does Russia's election and martial interference constitute war? Well, I do think it's an act of war. I mean, it's we call it, you know, information warfare. But to um, for us to uh, to look at this as as not as as a, as a military attack uh, would be wrong. In fact, a lot of this is done by the military intelligence unit of Russia. So I do think it's an act of war and should be. Tr- treated as such. The difficult question is what are the appropriate responses, but this is modern day warfare. It's not meddling. It is an attack. Okay. And Scott from Portland, Oregon asks, is cancel culture part of the long slippery slope to gulags? You want to pull it up for your book about gulags? I'm assuming that's why (laughs) um, (laughs) this question came in. (laughs) Don't write them. I wonder. Um, I mean, you know, one can one could say that um, you know any form of 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 undermining free speech and and freedom of association and free press um, could, in you know, in the right circumstances, be the road to to authoritarianism. Um, um, you know, it depends what you mean by cancel culture. It has to be part of the answer to that. But I mean, yes, it's true that the um, creating an atmosphere inside institutions in which people are afraid to speak or they feel that there's only one way that um, that you're allowed to talk about certain subjects um, is dangerous and and can have um, detrimental effects on 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 education and on 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 discourse and debate. Um, you know, m- my view, which some of my friends disagree with, is that the greater threat to America right now, comes from the authoritarians who are inside government rather than the ones outside government. Um, and that the the threat from um, from the Trump administration is worse than than the one that comes from the, you know, sometimes the um, the the illiberal arguments inside universities and even inside news organizations. Okay. David Bill from Memphis asks, was President Trump's engagement with Kim Jong-un the right approach? 
Well, I think engagement, the idea of trying to engage, which Obama did and happened under the George W. Bush administration, is the right way to start. But you has to be done in a very yeah, deliberative way. You need, you, need, you need experts, you need people who understand the history, who understand the culture you're dealing with, and who understand the technical issues. Um, you know, Trump kept saying that Kim Jong-un agreed to the idea of denuclearization. But what he didn't understand was that Kim Jong-un's uh, idea of denuclearization included removing U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula and, a, and sort of a withdrawal from the region in terms of United States forces. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, but it wasn't as if he won a concession from Kim Jong-un for saying this. He didn't know the history. He didn't understand any aspect of this. He got thoroughly played, and then he walked away. There's no North Korean policy. There's nothing about dealing with the nuclear proliferation threat and the nuclear threat from North Korea. He just said, I'm done here. I'm out. It's out of the headlines. I'm not getting any credit for doing anything. So it was a completely botched job. And um, I wish we could be engaging with Putin on on climate change and other issues. I mean, I'm in favor of as much engagement as one can, can, can achieve sensibly. But Trump doesn't believe in preparation and understanding and expertise and intelligence. So when you do that with a, particularly with a dictator, an authoritarian, you're going to lose and you're going to lose big, which he has done. Okay. And Mark from Philadelphia asks, what allies will we be able to count on after the Trump era? Well, we certainly still have all across Europe, um, friends of our country. So, um, and, and I should say all across Asia, um, uh, you know, in, in South Korea and Taiwan, Japan, uh, you know, as well as our allies in Europe, we have, we have our traditional friends who do want us back and who do miss us, you know, and, and um, would like to have constructive engagement with the United States again. I mean, my, my fear isn't so much that they'll disappear. I think they will remain our allies. My fear is that they will be wary of us. Um, and they will be reluctant to commit, for example, um, you know, to, to to some of the projects that we want them to commit to, because um, because we've behaved with such volatility over the last four years, and they will be worried about um, what happens if the Republicans win again. Um, but I but I do think you know there remains a tremendous amount of goodwill towards the United States um, around the world, and. And you know, uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, um, you know, you can you can trace the the collapse in confidence to the arrival of Trump, and it may be that when he's gone, um, you know, it will it will go up again. I, I you know, I, I, you know, I, I still feel that the the thing, the ideals, the ideas that America stood for for a long time still mean something to people, um, and people will hope anyway that we're returning to them. Your mouth to God's ear. One more for each of you. Uh, David Alley from Long Island asks, will we ever be able to rid ourselves of foreign interference in our elections, or are we at the mercy of Facebook and Twitter? That's a very good question. I think the rise of the internet information ecosystem makes it a lot easier for bad actors overseas or at home to influence political discourse and political debates. Uh, even if they try to do it openly, which is not 
inconceivable and nothing illegal about it. So I do think we have a wider open information environment, which does give the opportunity to overseas actors to overtly or covertly influence American political opinion, particularly in terms of uh, elections. So I think the answer, though, is to be cognizant of this, to make sure that the government is informing the public of what is happening, particularly what's happening in an underhanded way, and for Facebook and Twitter and other social media companies to set up really good rules of the road so that, uh, again, people can see with transparency who is trying to do what. Uh, If we have that, we will minimize, I don't think we can get rid of it, but I think we can minimize the opportunity for bad actors here and abroad to unduly influence American politics. Reminds me a little, David Frum was on last week, and he, one of the first people to actually make me calm down and, and relax a little bit about the, the social media challenges we see we have in front of us. He talked about mm-hmm. how he gave the analogy of, of back in the early 1900s when motor vehicles were brand new, People, it was an exciting development. People were driving them erratically. No one knew how to drive them. They were running into things. They were crashing, killing people, etc. And then slowly, we learned how to build the guardrails. We learned how to create rules and structure and infrastructure in general. To, to and the government set boundaries on how you can drive, stoplights, etc. And and he used that analogy to say that he he believes he hopes I guess that eventually we will learn how to live with social media in the same way we've learned how to live with motor vehicles. New development, needs some guardrails, needs some uh, infrastructure and some rules to, to guide how we use them. Uh, that What you just said reminded me a little bit of that, and it's the only thing that's allowed me to sleep at night because I think Facebook and Twitter scare the hell out of me. <laughs> and um, last one for you. Um, it's a little inside joke, I think. Um, if Susan from Minneapolis asks, uh, is clearly has read your book. She asks, "Is it time for you to pick better guests for your parties?" Oh, <laughs> I have great guests at my parties. <laughs> the, yes, you go, tell um, our the, explain to our listeners in your new book. You you talk about guests and and what Susan's talking about there. Yes, so the book starts with a party, um, and this is not because I'm some kind of fantastic hostess or because it's not a book about parties. <laughs> It's not about catering or, you know, fancy clothes or anything. It's just that the party was a metaphor for political alliances. And one of the things that happens in the book is that I explain why some of my party, the guests that I had at a New Year's Eve party in 1999, don't speak to the other guests and what happened to make that political divide. But if she's got to the end of the book, she will know the book ends with another party, um, one that I had um, (laughs) last summer. Um, in which there was a different set of guests, um, and they all got along. So, um, well, one don't, of the, really, one don't, of don't spoil of, it for us. She might not have gotten there yet. I was just saying, one, one of the arguments of the book, which I think is something you alluded to a minute ago, um, is that um, as politics shifts and as um, the old political divisions change and as um, we find new alliances um, and there are you know, there are people coming together in the, in, you know, in the center of politics and over specific issues who disagreed in the past. And um, I hope that that's what's going to go on happening in the future. And we'll come out with a, you know, a, a, a stronger 
um, you know, a stronger political system that, you know, which is organized around the, 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 the issues that really face us today. The book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Um, it's just been, it's not been out very long, right? It just was out last week. Please make sure you pick that up. We can also um, read uh, Anne's writing on the, at The Atlantic. Between Twilight of Democracy and her writings at The Atlantic, um, you can uh, get a lot more information from Anne Applebaum uh, about all this stuff that, that we've been talking about tonight, Eastern Europe, and um, a lot of her expertise uh, as well. David's book, uh, is you just said, is out in paperback. It was a number one on the New York Times bestseller list, which is pretty impressive. Um, I came I came in at number two. I seem to live at number two in my entire life. But your book, <laughs> Russian Roulette, David, <laughs> your book, Russian Roulette, was number one. Um, uh, people, if, if you if you want to really dig into uh, a lot of what we talked about when it comes to Russia and the and the dynamics there, I really recommend folks who are listening to to grab um, Russian Roulette by David Corn. Um, and you can also read him. We can read you at Mother Jones still, correct? Yeah, motherjones.com, Mother Jones Magazine. And um, you can find me on Twitter. I seem to be there far more than I should be. Ann Applebaum and David Korn, thank you so much. Um, I learned a lot. Thank you both again, David Korn and Applebaum. We appreciate it. Thank you, Clay. Thanks so much. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly. And look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.